Welcome to Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. Episode 12, a conversation with Matt Packer, director of EVA International, Ireland's Biennale. Matt lives and works in Limerick, Ireland. Hello, Matt. Very nice to have you. Hi, Daniela. You're the director of EVA International. But before we talk about this, I would like to go back and ask you about your initial impulse to pursue your career in contemporary art, if this is possible to plan at all, and how you became a curator and exhibition maker. I, I guess I don't really have a, a sort of self-satisfied story that I tell myself or I tell others about how I got into this business. I just don't even really feel quite like I've arrived yet. So. I'm still sort of working, w working out kind of where I am and what it is that I do in many senses. But my initial interest in, in art was actually an interest more precisely in photography and more precisely in documentary photography. At this stage, I'm a provincial uh, teenager and I was interested in photography um, as a way of kind of having a relationship to the world and a relationship to, you know, cultural and historical events. And photography, in the way that I understood it then, was a, was a way in which you could do that. You, you weren't necessarily a kind, of, a kind of participant or an agent within those kinds of events. You were, you were a kind of witness. You were uh, a kind of codependent somehow in in the process of like history unfolding. In a way, the seeds of that still exist for me now. In a way, as a, as a, as a curator, as someone that's interested in um, uh, what curating is as a kind of broader historical process, or as a, a sort of a, a, a broader as a, as a kind of marker of of cultural time or something like this. I, I guess I have to sort of track it back to sort of my, yeah, my mid, my mid teens when I was interested in becoming a documentary photographer. Why didn't you become a documentary photographer? Well, I did in a sense. I mean, I, I studied photography, um, documentary photography in undergrad. And then in the process of doing that course, I became quite critical of documentary photography practice. It was quite, at that time, quite macho. It was quite a regimented uh, discourse around doc documentary photography, mm -hmm. and it just didn't feel very kind of liberatory. And at the same time, my brother, actually, my younger brother, had started a, a fine art degree in Goldsmiths in London, and I was very influenced by him and by some of the things that he was being taught and by some of the people that he was hanging around with. They just seemed so kind of light-footed and interesting and curious about the world in a way that just wasn't really part of what I was experiencing through documentary photography. Mm. So it, it wasn't a sort of like direct transition from like documentary photography into art. It was more that like, it was like a, an exit of documentary photography that just left me for a few years in the wilderness. And then from that position, I began to sort of gravitate towards an interest in art. So that in itself eventually led me to doing a curatorial program at, at Goldsmiths mm -hmm. um, with very much the intention of not necessarily being a curator of exhibitions or an institutional curator, but really curating at that time for me was quite an open-ended proposition. You know, I, I imagined myself emerging from that 
from that program, maybe as a publisher of artist books or as a writer or even as a kind of an, art, uh, an artist actually, curating, and this is now in the mid noughties, still somehow felt like a very open and expansive discipline to be involved in. And I guess I was aware at that time of, you know, curators like Matthew Higgs and, and these, kinds of, these kinds of characters that spoke very informally and very fluidly about their, their interest in art, but also interest in music. That, that sort of really shaped my horizon, my curatorial horizons. And, and from that point forward, I, I guess I stuck with it. Mm -hmm. Do you think um, those roles like uh, artist, curator, institution, all these roles, galleries in the art world, that they're like more shifting than ever, that they're more fluid or that it's sort of like cemented? I don't know, actually. I feel in some senses it's become more cemented. Mm -hmm. Like there was a time it felt like in when I first encountered curating as a discipline, that it was in a process of becoming more informal and more lax as a set of practices, right? So, and, and also that coincided, of course, with more artists that were engaged with like curatorial discourse in the UK. You know, characters like Jeremy Deller and Liam Gillick were, were mm -hmm. very imp important people on the kind of horizon of a kind of young student. So it felt at that time really really very wide open and i guess as i've as, as i've progressed in my career and i've worked in various institutional and kind of independent roles since i feel that that's that kind of informality has sort of dried up a little bit i mean perhaps that's me or perhaps that's actually something a bit more systematic and within the curatorial discourse itself it, it's curious you said uh, in an interview if you're interested in both changing and contributing to the culture you find yourself in, then it often means working at the edge of your own knowledge, experience and competency level. So that sounds to me like it's always changing. You have to be fluid because you have to adapt to the times. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the just the particularities in my experience of working in the curatorial field is that... Um, to kind of repeat the quote in other words, you're just constantly chasing kind of new information or new ways of doing things. You're not able to sort of rely on your experience necessarily or your professional aptitudes or skills in the way that you can in other, in other professions. This is, in itself makes curating both kind of thrilling and, and frightening in a way. <laughs> like you're constantly being challenged and you're constantly quite, I mean, in my case, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say insecure, but you're, you're constantly, you know, working with good artists or working in complica with, on complicated projects or in very compromising contexts. I mean, all of these things really kind of throw you to the fence and you have to kind of, in a way, establish a kind of value system and a way of doing things from scratch. And... On a good day, it's, it's the best experience in the world. And on a bad day, it's, it can be very insecuring and you can feel quite adrift. But I mean, I guess I've been doing it now kind of in a professional context for, for over 15 years. So mm -hmm. I guess uh, I've, I've got used to that. And how does the political situation and also now the situation with COVID-19, how does that influence your curating? and also to, to hear a little bit more about uh, Eva, 
how are you dealing with that situation in a time in which access to uh, real space is limited? Yeah, I mean, COVID has just been immense. And I mean, it, it, it continues to be. I mean, I'm the director of a BNL, and it's a difficult time to be a to be a, a BNL right now, when you are you are working uh, with international artists on often quite complex logistical projects. When you are trying to promote international audiences to your programs, I mean, these these are things that have just been um, made impossible as a result of COVID nineteen. My kind of philosophy and the approach that we've taken with Eva is to not not somehow sit outside the problem and not wait until it all the situation improves, but to in a way take it on and to understand that actually if you are a public-minded and publicly invested organization, this is what public life is right now. Mm -hmm. And there's a responsibility, in fact, of trying to find a way of working with it. And that set of ethics has informed the decisions we've taken for EVA this year, which, which is that we are going to be delivering the Biennale in a, a phased approach. So we're going to be delivering it across three phases. The first phase, phase opening in September with about 15 projects, uh, some on-site, some off-site, some online, some through broadcast. And then the two further, two further phases will follow in 2021. And this is an approach that... Uh, that of course raises all sorts of challenges and I mean it, there's a lot of work that we have to do ahead of us in terms of just trying to build some sense of momentum or consistency between each of the phases of the, the BNL but it's it's a way in which we can just sort of begin to kind of figure figure out ourselves as an organization in the context of uh, a public health crisis that isn't going away. I'm quite happy actually to be back in the office and to be working uh, with some of the familiar things of just trying mm -hmm. to sort of scramble a program together and mm -hmm. the, the office is the kind of usual chaos that you would expect it to be. And that, that, that in itself brings some comforts. I was kind of getting a bit sick of being at home. And so that's where we are with Eva. There's a lot of work to do, but um, we're making progress. But how, how important um, is Eva uh, for the Irish art scene? And how, how much is this included? And then also, there is, is there something in this Irish art scene which is different than probably like on a big scale in the international world? Is there something particular Irish or does it, doesn't it matter anymore? I mean, that's a the whole complicated set of questions there. And they're questions I think about all the time. I mean, Eva is, has a tremendous history in an Irish context and mm -hmm. uh, internationally. I mean, it dates back 40 years, 40 years of, of working with uh, international guest curators and interfacing artists that were based here in Ireland with uh, international peers. You know, 40 years is a long time in an Irish context. Like, 40 years predates most of the, the cultural infrastructure that exists within this country. If you understand that the Irish Museum of Modern Art, for instance, wasn't established until the early 90s, many of the, you know, the, the galleries and institutions that exist here today really didn't, didn't start happening in any kind of meaningful or substantive way until the noughties. Then, then EVA really is a very special organization. And within its history, you, you can kind of tell the story of contemporary art in, in, in the country, but also the sort of changing relationships or the changing status of Ireland's kind of internationalism and its regard or concern for being seen within an international framework.
it's a remarkable it's a remarkable organization and i'm very proud to be involved with it we're still in the process of trying to organize the archive and make that archive publicly mm -hmm. available in some way or another the organization has changed so much in the early days it was quite a, a homespun organization with ve with very few resources it's only in recent years that it's become a little bit more professionalized and self-aware of its um, of its importance as an organization you know eva is a very important organization for ireland and within it is is i truly believe is the kind of the map of how contemporary art developed in this country ireland is an art scene that is not really very well known internationally mm -hmm. i would say but that has in my view it's got more to do with kind of things like media infrastructure, the lack of that uh, in the country, and the lack of institutional parity with other European or international institutions, mm -hmm. then it has to do with the strength of the, the art that's produced here. I mean, Ireland has some incredible artists and incredible institutions also that really do deserve to be seen by a, by a broader audience. That's where Ireland is at the moment. I mean, it's changing again, of course, because of things like Brexit, I mean, which is going to completely, for better or worse, going to change our relationship to Europe and, of course, to the UK, and perhaps even consolidates our kind of the kind of European sense of uh, sense of ourselves. Uh, whereas for so long, of course, Britain was the kind of you know the, almost like a coextensive space. And of course, I'm not talking politically, but in in terms of culture and media, Britain and Ireland were quite coextensive with one another. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that, you know, in, in a sense, has sort of has not helped um, the development of the kind of Irish art world as a sort of distinct and identifiable entity. So you think it's even, it might even be a chance to sort of like shape a, a stronger identity for the Irish art world? I, th I think so. I think so. I mean, I don't think that's going to happen quickly or, um, or easily, but I think... I, I think that's the case. I mean, to a certain extent, it's already it's already happening. I mean, the other thing to say about Ireland, of course, is as a, it has a very particular relationship with the US. You know, just through its kind of diaspora and mm -hmm. the history of emigration, and it has always tried, I think, to establish connections into kind of mainland Europe um, and and sort of look beyond look beyond the UK for for reasons that have, you know partly to do with politics and and partly to do with actually you know, parities of scale or parities of like institutional setup and that kind of thing. So for Eva, for instance, we're part of a small BNL network called Occasional Groundwork. And we're working quite closely with smaller regional European BNLs like Contour in Belgium and Liaf in Norway and Gothenburg in, in, in Sweden. And, and in a way, those examples are easier for us to match with than other examples in the UK, for instance, it's just somehow made sense to build our partnerships that way. I mean, this all sounds very bureaucratic and boring, but I guess that's that's part of what I have to do <laughs> as, the, as the kind of the director of a, a BNL organization. I think because there are real lives behind it and real artists and uh, real people, I think it's very uh, important because Ireland has a very special role right now with Brexit, with what you just mentioned, the relation to the US, and with probably a growing relation to Europe. So probably there will be a cultural fundamental shift 
which follows these bureaucratic things you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I think Brexit is a bit of an opportunity. And in a, in a sense, it's already done something to consolidate, yeah, the kind of European orientation of, of the country. I mean, the, the UK and Ireland, of course, share so much, and there's still a huge amount of connectivity um, between, the two, between the two countries. But I, I, I just do feel that Ireland's equivalence and parity it makes a bit more sense in, in other parts of Europe. You know, that's the space I'm, you know, I'm interested in working with also kind of personally. In that context, what do you think is the role of the artists right now and the exhibition makers in this ever-changing world, which is, and where, where culture probably is very much challenged also right now? I don't know. I mean, that's, that's also a, a massive question. And to be quite honest, I mean, in my current role, I don't really, I don't really get to ask that question very much. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the question that I'm asking myself a lot at the moment is what are, what are institutions right now? And I think institutions, both as a result of COVID and as a result of, I think, a general set of turbulences in the world, I think are very vulnerable and are very suspect. And I think there's an opportunity and a real challenge for organizations to sort of remodel themselves and to re-ascribe values to what they do and to the way that they work. So I've been really preoccupied by these kinds of questions, in fact, more so than questions of arts kind of intention. I mean, of course, they're related and you know, being a, a BNL organization, one of the kind of primary things I think about is like, how do we as an organization provide the right kinds of terms of invitation for guest curators and for artists? And what do we need to do to better support and better represent uh, artists and artist practices? And what are the things that we need to put in place to sort of affect sort of positive change in that regard? One of the things that I'm very aware of in an Irish context, for instance, is the lack of production opportunity. There's a bit of a deficit in Ireland, and this is historical in terms of like production capacity and production infrastructure. So if you're an ambitious, uh, smart artist that wants to produce work of scale and complexity or over a long period of time, in Ireland, you're limited in terms of the resources that you need and the money that you can source to make complicated projects happen. And I think some of what I'm trying to do with Eva is developing through our framework and our mandate as a BNL organization, is develop a an, institute, an infrastructural framework so that we can be a kind of primary commissioner of ambitious projects and we can, we can provide the resources to artists to be able to dream big. There's been some initiatives that we've, we've, we've developed in the last few years. So I guess I take some responsibility as an institutional director in trying to create those kinds of opportunities and trying to change the horizon lines for, for artists that make work in this country. And do, are you also reaching out to the art schools? Yeah, we, we have a very close working relationship with the art schools. The projects that we develop with those schools are often quite programmatic. They're often quite specific, but it's an incredibly like, important space for us. And we're talking to University of Limerick. We're working with them also because these, these are things, you know, the resources that exist within, within a university of any kind, you know, these are resources that can be a real benefit to artists, you know, in, in developing new work, 
So we like to sort of see ourselves as a bit of a broker in terms of how we can set up those kinds of relationships. So you see yourself, I mean, not only in, in ways of the institution, but also you yourself personally, you see yourself as a partner for the artist? Yeah, def yeah definitely. Yeah, I, I almost couldn't think of it in any other way. Obviously, audience is also quite, you know, a very important part of what we, what we do and what we think about, but... Primarily, I see the organization as, as an artist organization. And in fact, that goes back to the history of the project. I mean, in 1977, Eva was established by artists, by artists that were living and working in Limerick that wanted some injection uh, and stimulus that wasn't otherwise available to them. And in a sense, Eva hasn't really changed as a, as, as a model. All of this is quite sort of synergetic, I think. And yeah, it's more than just a, like a presentational organization, I think. It's more than just actually like presenting artwork. It's also about development. It's about developing projects and developing kind of opportunities for many of the artists we work with. That sounds like, like Eva is uh, ne next to providing uh, opportunities for exhibition, like a connecting hub for people. And that means it uh, has to do a lot with communication and dialogue. And I wonder, did your way of communicating change in the, la next, uh, in the last few months? Yeah, well, not quite within the terms that I've just described, but w within the last four months, of course, there's, it's radically changed the way that we're able to communicate. And I think it has all organizations. The one thing that I was very aware of, both here in Ireland and internationally, was this, I think, quite desperate attempt by some organizations to communicate their, um, their busyness and their preparedness to produce and to support and to produce culture and produce their work in the context of a global pandemic. And I felt that there was that many organizations, I'm afraid to say, were quite sort of tone deaf about that and were not sensitive to the public space or the public realm being a place of distress and of being a, a place of great instability. And I think there was a responsibility or it's, it's a position I took anyway, that, you know, an organization like Eva kind of needed to be a little bit quiet until it had something to say or something to offer into, into that public realm. The last few months has, 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 has of course changed our communication patterns. Yeah, I must say it was, it was, I was quite ambivalent about the way that I saw other organizations communicating in the midst of uh, a global pandemic and I just felt like it was just not appropriate to be doing that you know what would you feel to be um, appropriate well I'm not sure I mean maybe actually just not doing anything or having the confidence to just understand that society was going through a massive change and the best thing to do right now would be to listen so for me an appropriate response to COVID would perhaps be the response of not really trying to do very much at all, mm -hmm. but to understand that as an organization, and of course organizations are all run by, are run by people essentially, people that also have kind of vulnerabilities and you know, health concerns and that exist within public space. So yeah, I guess I, I, I feel that there was just too desperate an attempt in, in, the, in the past four months to sort of demonstrate the kind of value of art or demonstrate the kind of the, the effort of uh, pretending everything was kind of normal or trying to compete in terms of online content and online program, some of which was better than others. But I think from my perspective, I, I just really responded quite badly to it. And 
Mm -hmm. It was a kind of space of withdrawal for me. And uh, it was a space of just trying to sort of regather what your priorities were and get some sense of scale to the problem. And I mean, to be honest, that is still something that we're trying to work out. I mean, we, ju mm -hmm. we just don't know how long this is going to last, but it seems quite clear that, that you know, public space is, is, by public space, I'm really just talking about the public realm, of course. It, it's never, it's never going to be the same again. And I think organizations probably need to do take the time to to kind of think about what they can what they can offer actually with you know in in a space that has been very damaged and uh, with many people left affected in one way or another it would it's a mistake to pretend that none, none of none of that is happening. Mm -hmm. You think we're still in a learning process, and uh, it's a sign of confidence actually to be able to not be overactive and not uh, show that we can just uh, do business as usual. You've, you've said it there in a few sentences, exactly what I was trying to say. I think that's, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, my approach to organizations is that they're better when they are sympathetic and social organizations, mm -hmm. and they're not these impermeable fortresses in a way. You know, organizations should be allowed to kind of feel vulnerable or, or be unsure or to ask questions about itself and what it's doing. And I feel that so many organizations don't have the confidence to do that. And this has got everything to do with, you know, funding and, you know, trying to maintain some sense of mission and assertiveness. But I guess my attitudes have always been slightly different to that. Mm -hmm. And do you feel you have a lot of allies in that approach? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I talk to lots of other kind of directors and uh -huh. I think a lot of people kind of feel the same way and uh, yeah, and, and feel that there's just, an, a, there needs to be like a process of institutional alignment ahead of us. So in that sense, I feel, I don't feel quite alone. I'm, I'm genuinely quite kind of positive about it because I do think that there's, if we can have that confidence organizationally, then in a way that there is the there is the possibility of making new institutions or revising institutions with new, with, new, with new values and with just a stronger and more convincing mandate. And that, that does get me very excited. Actually, before COVID started, one of my preoccupations was, was in thinking about working internationally and what that means and what that has meant and what that could mean in the future. Mm -hmm. And international, you know, as we know, is a word that is used and has been used in the kind of art world with, with abundance, but without really much precision. You know, inter working internationally or an international group show, this word just attaches itself to mean something aspirational and usually something that is just the opposite of being closed or local or provincial. But I feel that this word international has come a long way from what I want it to mean in a way, which, you know, dates back to the early 20th century and some of the kind of international solidarity movements that were really using that word to build something of shared experience and post-nationalism in a kind of agenda. And of course now internationalism means doesn't really evoke those sort of same that same sense of solidarity it's, it's a word of, that is completely fluid with a kind of neoliberal mm -hmm. capitalist culture and it doesn't mean anything in a practical sense internationalism at worst is often a tactic 
for like leveraging some kind of funding or some kind of advantage from one context to another. And I feel that the art world can be so much better than that, actually. So the conversations that I've been having here with, at EVA, but also with some of the colleagues as part of that network that I mentioned previously, is about trying to sort of rethink what internationalism can mean and how we kind of redescribe it with different values. So is there a way, for instance, of working internationally? But it's about co-development. So the idea, for instance, that if we in Ireland were to work with um, an equivalent institution in in Sweden or in Finland, let's say, that it isn't just about one of us benefiting cynically from that exchange, but in a way we could both go through a process of co-development. So is there a way of working internationally that is co-developmental, essentially? And this is something that I'm really keen in thinking about and somehow trying to sort of re-describe into, in, into the work we do as an organization. Of course, international is, is also a, become a problem word in light of the environmental concerns, mm -hmm. you know, flying or art shipping, these kinds of things. How do you sustain that res responsibly? How do you promote internationalism in terms of artwork and artists, but at the same time take responsibility for its kind of ecological footprint? And I think I have no real diagnosis or solution for this, but I feel that there's a lot of work to do for organizations that are interested and understand the values of what it means to work internationally. But I think at the beginning of all of this is what you also said is like a more open, more transparent, more empathic dialogue between uh, the institutions. But uh, as you said, the institutions are run by people. So yeah, I mean, some of this is to do with, yeah, like communication style and the way that an organization might speak about the work it does, but it's also like, like organizational culture itself. And this is something that I've also been quite interested in exploring, like as a director of an institution. You get to think about things like organizational culture or what kind of culture do you want to create in the organization that you, you lead and represent. So that comes down to things like what are the conditions in which we want to live and work by? Like how do we ensure that we don't reproduce the kind of burnout and precarity of working in the arts mm -hmm. that we've kind of inherited? How do, we, how do we get better at doing that? I think about all of that kind of stuff. This question of like organizational empathy is both like outwards in terms of like speaking to the public, but it's also kind of inwards in terms of all the relationships that are kind of established with the team and with anyone that we engage with. It's, it's also just about kind of style somehow, or like how you, how you kind of like manage a team of people. And I'd like to think that we're kind of making progress in that regard. And the work that we're doing as an organization is like healthier than the, the kind of organizational culture that I kind of inherited or have experienced in other kinds of working environments. Did you becoming a father changing your thinking about all of this too? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, thanks for asking that. I mean, I don't really get an opportunity to talk about that like with any, in any kind of professional context. But it's, yeah, it's been, it's been hugely fundamental. It completely changes your relationship to yourself as well. And one of the like real emotional effects that like being a father had on me was that it kind of completely stripped away your kind of creative ego. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even sure I had much of a creative ego to begin with. Like until, until my son was born, 
did I become clear that, that that was something that was no longer like a priority for me or like part of me. I was just less interested actually like kind of in myself and much more interested in, um, in him and like the world that he was in the process of encountering. Mm -hmm. it, it completely recompasses you and your place in the world. It's, it's been totally positive. I'm very happy with the way things are at the moment. You can feel this vulnerability now more than probably mm -hmm. you did before. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, as a parent, you you become very aware of the world that he's encountering, and you become very concerned with ensuring that the world that he's encountering is somehow like a world that is open and that is tolerant, and that has institutions that function for people and are sensitive and empathetic to people's needs it's a very sensitizing process so so, so maybe that has got much more to do with the, the way that i started thinking about eva yeah no i appreciate your i appreciate your questions there's just quite a lot of work to do you know i mean in the last four months we've seen a public health crisis we've seen black lives matter We've seen in an Irish context, I'm not sure about internationally, but another public expose on sexual harassment in, in the cultural industries. I mean, there are major systematic ills that need to be sorted out. And it's the responsibility of all institutional directors or anyone, anyone that has any power of responsibility to try and figure a way of making them better and making them more responsive and making them more open and usable spaces for people. The, the, the institu an institution can be both kind of empathetic to that uncertainty, uncertainty, but it can also be a way of navigating, you know, some kind of new horizons or some new values. I'm hopeful. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you, Daniela. Thank you for listening to Voices on Art the Fan Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. Stay tuned and connect.